Our scripture reading today is from the prophet Ezekiel from John's Gospels and Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I shall lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and the flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain so that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. John 6, 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. John 14, 15 through 20. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Romans 8, 1 through 11. There is therefore no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of life, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing this morning? Good. Well, I'm, I'm doing great. I have the privilege of uh, talking to you guys this morning about the Holy Spirit. That's our, our topic of discussion. Uh, but be- before we get there, uh, would you all join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you. God, we confess our need for you, uh, our need for you to work in our lives and our hearts and do something for us that we are incapable of doing for ourselves, Lord. Father, we need your spirit, God, to give us life. And spirit, we ask that you would fill our hearts, that uh, you would be at work in us, God, and I pray that we would yield to you, Holy Spirit. I pray that we would submit to you, that we would follow you, that we would love you. God, please help us to know you more this morning. And God, we love you and we thank you, God. We cannot thank you and love you enough, but we thank you so much that you have still regardless of our inability, brought us in uh, to your family, into your life, God, and for that we are grateful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so unfortunately, I have some troubling statistics to share with you uh, this morning about the Holy Spirit, what people believe about the Holy Spirit. Um, In 2009, a study was done by Barna Group uh, surveying Uh, self-professed born-again Christians, right? So these are supposedly Bible-believing evangelical Christians. And this is a survey about their beliefs on the Holy Spirit. And what was found is that um, less than half of the individuals surveyed actually believed in the full personhood and divinity of the Holy Spirit. 58% of the individuals that took this survey uh, did not confess the personhood and deity of the Holy Spirit. Now, I will admit that the Bible's teaching can be hard to understand at times. It can be confusing sometimes uh, to understand the Trinity, like how the Trinity works together, how there's one God in three persons, right? That is something that is beyond our comprehension. Sometimes it's hard to understand what the role of the Holy Spirit is. But how is it that so many people have gotten so far off the mark Well, I would submit to you, I would contend that uh, part of it has to do with at least an evangelical culture. We don't really talk about the Holy Spirit. We might talk about God the Father. We might talk about God the Son. And then nothing about the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about the Holy Bible, right? Uh, In charismatic circles, you'll hear a little bit about the Father, a little bit about the Son, and then a lot about the spiritual gifts. I believe the problem is that when people think about the Spirit, they first think about what the Spirit does for them, how it benefits them. As a whole, as a culture, as a Christian culture, we are far too concerned with ourselves. This comes across in the questions that we ask that are like normalized in Christianity. All right, who is God to you? What does this passage mean to you? What has God done for you? We're too concerned about ourselves. We're too concerned about how we can benefit. But biblical revelation first shows us who the Spirit is. When it comes to the Spirit, the Bible's primary concern 
is not about the debates that we have about the gifts of the Spirit and the extent to which they continue today. The Bible's first concern is to show us that the Holy Spirit is God. The Spirit's not just a force. He's not a symbol. He is a divine person. The same in substance with the Father and Son, equal in power and glory. And here's where I think we're going to get a lot of clarity on this church. Is the fact that we know the Holy Spirit through Jesus. Through Jesus Christ. So just like we know the Father through Jesus, right? Jesus says, if you have seen me, then you have seen the Father. So just like we know the Father through Jesus and the relationship that the Father has with the Son, it's the same thing with the Spirit. We know him through Jesus Christ. We read this this morning in our, in our scripture reading. This is what Jesus says about the Spirit in John chapter 14. Jesus says, while he's with his disciples, before he's gone to the cross, he says, you know him, you know the Spirit, for he dwells with you and will be in you. All right, this is before the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. He's telling the disciples that you know the presence of the Spirit because you have been in my presence. Our knowledge of God, our knowledge of the Trinity is mediated through Jesus Christ. And when we think about the Spirit in this way, asking first the question, who is the Spirit to Jesus, according to what the Scriptures have to tell us, that's when we get a very crystal clear picture of the Spirit's person and divinity. And it is this picture that the words of the creed summarize for us. And it is what we will explore together today. So our main idea this morning is that the Holy Spirit is God, full stop. He is God. That's no no other discussion, point blank period, the Holy Spirit is God. He is the Lord and giver of life, the one who rescues us from our state of ruin by gifting us with himself. Three points that will help us examine this. One, the Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. Two, he proceeds from the Father and the Son. And three, he is the gift of triune fellowship. So we're discussing today who is the Spirit. All these points have to do with who the Holy Spirit is. That's the question we need to ask because the Holy Spirit is a person. All right, so point number one. He is the Lord and giver of life. Okay, our focus here, right, this is the main focus under this heading, is that the Spirit's authority and ability to give life show us the fact that he is God. All right, so in other words, the Spirit's work, what he does, reveals to us the fact that he is God. Um, at some points in Scripture, we're just flat out told that the Holy Spirit is God. Take, for example, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Here Paul says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So just a, like a flat out statement on the divinity of the Spirit. In Acts chapter 5, Peter confronts a man named Ananias who is trying to harm the church. And he says, 
Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Right? So another just flat-out statement that the Holy Spirit is God. But the primary way, the most common way that Scripture reveals the Spirit's divinity to us is by showing us that the Spirit can do what only God can do. He can do what no creature can do, and that is he can command life. So this is the point to remember. Like if you remember one thing from this sermon, if you write one thing down, it's this, that the Holy Spirit has the ability and authority that only God possesses. That is how we know he is divine. He is a divine person. No creature can do what God can do. No creature can do what the Holy Spirit can do. So let's think back to our reading from Ezekiel. This was a vision about a valley of dry bones. We saw a multitude of dry bones in this valley, an army's worth. And in this vision, Ezekiel speaks to the bones, and then they come together, and even sinew and muscle and skin come upon them. So they become embodied, but they have no breath, right? They have no life until the Spirit comes. And what we want to know about this passage is that in Ezekiel 37, right, where we see breath, like we see the word breath all over this passage, eight times in 12 verses. This word for breath in Hebrew is the same word for spirit. That word is ruach. And we're meant to see a connection between a lack of breath in these embodied but lifeless people and then the spirit, the breath that comes upon them so God commands Ezekiel to prophesy. He, he commands Ezekiel to speak to the breath, to the spirit in verses 9 and 10. And here Ezekiel addresses a distinct subject, a distinct person. This is an individual that Ezekiel is addressing. He's not just addressing some vague thing. He's addressing a subject, a person. And he addresses the Spirit so that the Spirit would come upon these, this in multitude of embodied but lifeless people. And then the vision is concluded with God saying, I will put my Spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. All right, so again, we're meant to see that these breathless, these lifeless people had no life until the Spirit of God, a distinct individual that was addressed by Ezekiel, comes to breathe upon them, comes to be present among them. And what this is, uh, what this vision is about, it's, it's a work of the Holy Spirit foretold in the Old Testament. So just like we see shadows of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, so also we see shadows of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Here the Spirit is responsible. He is the one that is being addressed, and he is the one who provides life when he is present. There is life in his presence. What we see is that where the person of the Spirit is present, that is where life is brought forth. 
In other words, the Spirit is the agent. He is the Lord and giver of life. And in a very real sense, this is how Jesus knew the Holy Spirit. We're asking the question, who is the Spirit to Jesus? Jesus knew the Spirit during his earthly life and ministry. He says in John chapter 6, verse 63, we just read it. He says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. And let's think for a moment, like how well Jesus knew this point to be true. Jesus was conceived in the womb of a virgin, lifeless. The flesh was of no help at all. But when the Spirit showed up, life was brought forth. The Spirit brought life where there was no life. During his earthly ministry, Jesus was sustained by the Spirit. He defeated Satan and his temptations in the wilderness with no food and no water. The flesh was no help at all. Jesus experienced firsthand the divine power of the Holy Spirit in his life. He personally experienced the fact that the Spirit has the authority and the capability that only God has. And it wasn't just in his life. He experienced this in his resurrection. You think back to Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Here Paul says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the argument here is that just like Jesus was raised from the dead through the power of the spirit, so we will also be raised on resurrection day through the power of the spirit. The Spirit was present and active in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he will be present and active in our resurrection. Throughout his life and in his resurrection, Jesus knew the Spirit as the Lord and giver of life. Again, for Jesus, the Spirit did what only God could do. He made his life from the nothingness of Mary's womb, and he raised him from the dead. That is the power and prerogative of God alone. Throughout the New Testament, resurrection activity, resurrection power is assigned to God. So that means that the resurrection was not just a vindication of Jesus' identity, a a vindication of Jesus' divine being, but the resurrection was a vindication of the Spirit's divinity. Jesus was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. The flesh was no help at all. This is only something that God could have done. Church, I believe that we need to take this reality more seriously. That it is the Spirit who gives life and the flesh is of no help at all. Because too often, we are relying on the flesh. Too often, when our souls feel like they're right there in that valley of dry bones, restless, helpless, dead. When our souls are in the valley, 
We are too often trying to manufacture life by ourselves through our own willpower. But the flesh is powerless here. No creature can command life. Life comes from the Spirit. So let me ask you this. What is the posture of your heart towards the Holy Spirit? Are you, in a sense, turning your back on his power and influence? Or are you attentive to his presence? Have you been quiet enough, still enough this week to feel his breath invigorate your soul? And don't get me wrong, the Spirit is sovereign. He works according to his will. That is the will of God. And he can give life to the deadest of hearts. But as believers, we are in daily, continual need of his life-giving presence. So may our hearts be mindful of his influence. Be attentive to his guidance. Listen to him. Dare I say, feel his presence. I think in some of the circles that we come from, we are too hesitant to talk about the Holy Spirit like that. It's too charismatic. We might be accidentally crossing some kind of boundary by saying that we can actually feel and experience the presence of God, right? Because a feeling's not inerrant. That's not even the point. I mean, think about it. God is the great, awesome, almighty king and creator of this universe. He is not bound by time, and he transcends all the limits of our reality. Is that not a God whose presence can be felt? You think about the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit showed up, he shook the place like an earthquake. This is a God whose presence can be felt. So don't tell me that at this point in church history, we should now disengage from feeling and experience the presence, feeling and experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus shows us who the Spirit is. Jesus shows us that the Spirit is God because his own earthly life and resurrection are a testimony to the fact that the Spirit has the authority and the ability to do something that only God can do. But Jesus also shows us how the Spirit has eternally existed in perfect relationship with himself and the Father. And here's where we get into our second point. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, this might seem like awkward language or weird language, random language, arbitrary language. But what this shows us, what this language teaches us, is that God is eternally relational and that it is these relationships within the Trinity that distinguish each person. All right, so this is going to require us to think about some Trinitarian theology for a minute. Uh, but thankfully, we have a helpful illustration. All right, here we can see that there's one God 
in three persons. And we always want to look at this and think of this as a home plate, our anchor point. And this anchor point is actually anchored in a biblical text. So we all know the Great Commission, or many of us are familiar with it. Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This comes across a bit in English, but it like sticks out like a sore thumb in Greek. The fact that name is singular. We're not baptizing people in the names. We're commanded to baptize people in the name. And for a first century Jew, that is the divine name. The divine name, Yahweh. There is one name, which is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is our anchor point, no matter how complicated the discussion might seem to get with the Trinity, we always want to keep this in view. And here we see that there is one God, not three gods, there's one God. And we see that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. They are not three parts of God. They are each fully, 100%, everything that God is. Yet, the Father is not the Son and is not the Spirit. The Son is not the Father and not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. Hey, this is important for us to think about. We need to hold all these things in tension because if we bend on any of these points, then that's a road towards heresy, like Mormonism. So like I said, we have one God in three persons, and each person is everything that the one God is. Now here's the question that that presents. If that's the case, if each person is everything that the one God is, then how do we tell them apart? What distinguishes Father, Son, and Spirit? If they are each the one God, how can we tell them apart? The answer is by their relations, by their relationships within the Trinity. Each person of the Trinity is distinguished relationally. So there are eternal relations within the Godhead. All right, just think about the name Father. A father cannot be a father without a son. God is eternally a father. He needs an eternal son. There is no eternal father without an eternal son. Same, same goes for the son. The son cannot be a son without a father. And it's the same thing with the Holy Spirit. The relational distinction of the spirit is that he proceeds, which means he's breathed out. He is eternally breathed out from the father and the son. So real quick, here's how we know. In scripture, we see the Spirit being called both the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of the Son. Like we read it in Romans chapter 8, where the Spirit was called the Spirit of God, and in the same verse, called the Spirit of Christ. So the Spirit is the Spirit of God the Father and God the Son. And in addition to that, we see that both Father and Son are responsible for the giving, the breathing out of the Spirit on God's people. So that 
to summarize is the reason why we affirm the words of the creed that the spirit proceeds from father and son. Everyone doing good so far? Yeah, you guys are doing great. So, um, both father and son breathe out the spirit. And since that is the case, since that is the relational distinction between the spirit and the father and son, we also know that this is how he has existed eternally. So the spirit has been eternally breathed out by father and son. And that point is incredibly important because there was never a time where the father and the son were not breathing out the spirit. He is eternally proceeding from father and son. And so what this means is that uh, the Son and the Father are not more fundamental to the life of God than the Spirit is. The the Father and the Son aren't more essential to the Trinity than the Spirit is. The Spirit is not an addition. He's not an extension to the life of God, but he is essential to the life of God. God is... God the Spirit is not distinguished in what he is. The Spirit possesses every bit of divinity that Father and Son do. He is God full stop. The way that he is distinguished is in how he relates eternally to Father and Son. So it's not events or forces outside of the life of God that make God relational. He's not like us. Like, I can't be relational, I can't exist in relationship without someone else, someone outside of me. God is not like that. The community that he has enjoyed forever is not dependent on anything outside of him. And it's not like this is any kind of relationship that God has been experiencing either. This is a perfect, fully self-giving others-focused relationship. In eternally begetting the Son, the Father gives his whole life, everything. He fully gives of himself to the Son. He shares his whole divine life, everything that he is with the Son. In eternally breathing out the Spirit, the Father and the Son give everything that they are to the Holy Spirit. The full sharing of their divine life and fellowship. God is inherently, by his nature, perfectly self-giving and relational. He needed no one and nothing to experience perfect love and relationship. Before God ever made a creation, he had all the love and goodness he could ever want. That is what the breathing out, that is what the procession of the Spirit reveals to us. Good job. Like that's our Trinitarian theology for the month. Okay, now in our last point, I want to show you, hopefully, why this Trinitarian love is so foundational, so beautiful for God's people. Okay, last point here. The Spirit is the gift of triune fellowship. In Acts chapter 2, Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive 
the gift of the Holy Spirit. Several other places in the New Testament specifically call the Spirit a gift. John chapter 7, Jesus calls the Spirit a gift. And my point here is that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ has received the gift of the Spirit. We don't have to wait for like a, another time down the road to receive the gift of the Spirit. No, we receive the gift of the Spirit simultaneous with the moment that God works faith in our hearts. The moment we believe in Jesus Christ, the moment we put our trust in him, that is when we receive the Holy Spirit. Now this language of gift, it can be a little bit vague. So let's ask the question, what sort of gift is he? Well, from my experience, oftentimes when people think of the Holy Spirit, it's almost as if they're thinking of him as like a divine energy drink, like the Spirit gives me that little bit of extra energy and strength to push harder, to be a bit more holy, to be more spiritual, to do better, right? He's giving me energy in that sense. Or at other times, we'll think of the Spirit as like, as if he were this mystical guide to help us make the right decisions about which car to buy or what house to buy or whether to go here for lunch or there for lunch. And look, the Holy Spirit does give us strength and guidance, but we cannot reduce him down to those things. That's not the kind of gift that he is. The Spirit is first and foremost a divine person. He is God. That means he's not the gift of energy or guidance or good decision-making. No, he is the gift of divine relationship, divine fellowship. Look with me at Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Here Paul writes, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So looking at this, we can see that God's love is present and mediated through the Holy Spirit who is gifted to us. Paul is not saying here that God declares his love for us through the Holy Spirit. No, he's saying that God's love is present. It is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. In other words, God's love is present in the Spirit. When the Spirit is in us, there God's love is present. Now, here's why this becomes so beautiful for us as God's people. And this is where God's eternal relationships, what, the point that we saw in point number two, this is why they become so important for us specifically. God's love is an eternal triune love. Right? It is a self-giving, others-focused love. God the Father has eternally loved and given himself to the Son and the Spirit. The Son has eternally loved and given everything that he is to the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit likewise has eternally loved the Father and the Son and has given him everything that he is. Okay, within the Godhead, there is a perfect community and unity of love. 
You could say that there is this familial bond of love that has existed within the Trinity forever. It is this kind of love, this character of love that is gifted to us. This is the kind of love that is present when we receive the Holy Spirit. This familial, other-centered love is present in our hearts when the Holy Spirit is present. Because of the gift of the Spirit, we get to experience this perfect communion of love in the Trinity. Okay, so this is different from like a single person showing affection for you, right? This is being invited into a family, a perfect loving community, the perfect loving community that is the one and only triune God. You know, one of the things that blessed me the most when I was a single person is uh, when a friend, a friend of mine who had a family, kids, he would invite me to like spend family time with them, like just do a, a day with the family. So we'd go to the zoo. I'd watch my friend and his wife get like exasperated, run around with their kids and everything. I'd watch them love their kids, right? The whole thing wasn't about me. I was observing, in a sense, their love for one another. But at the same time, I wasn't just an observer. I wasn't an outsider, right? They, I was encapsulated, invited into the love and the warmth that they shared with one another. Let me share another illustration with you. The first time I went to visit my wife, Brenna, um, this was before we were dating, I am living in Florida at the time. She is in New Hampshire, where she's from. And it's wintertime in New Hampshire. I've never been to New Hampshire before. So I get to New Hampshire, and it's very pretty. Like, it's magical. Uh, all, there's all these tall evergreen trees, and they're perfectly dusted with snow. So it's a very magical experience for me. Um, but during this time, I was able to be invited into... Brenna's life. Uh, it, I, was, I was invited into her background. I was able to see the affections that had shaped her as a person. And this showed me a richness to her heart that I didn't know before. And I realized during that time that maybe I'm not the one who would potentially bring the most value to this relationship. Maybe the most value was found in uh, the history, the affections that had shaped Brenna, the character that she had built. That is what brought the most value. And you know, it's, it's certainly very cool, it's awesome that she was interested in me, but what made the whole thing so much richer was to see this great deal of affection that she had in her heart for people and things that had nothing to do with me. Right? She had this whole body of affection, this whole love that was outside of me. You could say, or you could say that in a far greater sense, the love the persons of the Trinity have for each other is the richest, most valuable thing that we could ever experience. Being, being encapsulated, sharing in the warmth of his triune love. 
sometimes very saddening how this happens, but sometimes God is inaccurately portrayed as not really having anything before he created the world. As if he were bored and lonely before creating mankind. And so now that we're here, now that us wonderful human beings are here, God really has something to look forward to. A relationship that that can be worthwhile. Now that is a ridiculous concept. Do you know what God had before us? Do you know what he had before anything or anyone ever came into existence? He had absolutely everything. There was no lack, no need, no deficiency in the life of God. The relations within the Trinity show us the extent to which Jesus went to save his people. He had the fullness of love and community and satisfaction before the foundation of the world was ever laid. He had everything and he gave up everything by becoming a servant, being found in human form. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He experienced the forsakenness of God. I mean, can you imagine what that would have meant for him to know that the Father turned his face away? And he endured that to save dead, decaying souls. The reality, the fact of the matter is that we each had a plot in that valley of dry bones. We weren't just sick or injured or damaged. We were dead, broken, slowly turning to dust. We might have been embodied but we did not have true life. There was no true life there until the sovereign spirit came and breathed upon us to give us life according to the perfect eternal love between Father, Son, and Spirit. Last thing I'll say, and then we'll be done. This precedent of Trinitarian, other-focused love is the reason why Jesus says in John 13, this is why he says, by this all the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We can be a witness to Jesus Christ. We can show the world that we belong to Jesus not by adopting the world's values, not by catering to the world, and it's not going to be by closing ourselves off to the world, but by inviting others into a community where 
others-focused love and genuine care is the norm rather than the exception. We can encapsulate others in the warmth of a community, the warmth of a family, where individuals prioritize the well-being of others before their own well-being. That is how the Trinity shapes our community. And that is the richness that life in the church has to offer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and I pray that we would humble ourselves before you, God, and that we would receive the gift that you have to offer uh, in your son, Jesus Christ, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you so much for not leaving us in that dead valley. Thank you for pursuing us. Thank you for loving us. God, thank you that your, your love within the Trinity has overflowed to encapsulate us, God. Father, we love you and we thank you. We praise you. And we ask all these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.